Mark chapter 6, let's go down to verse 6, and verse 6 is a, is a pivotal verse. It takes us from one scene in Nazareth, and midway through the verse, it turns to another scene that is the village ministry. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony to them. So they went out. They proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts. I pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would be present in an unusual way to bring about necessary, needed, and longed-for change. I pray for humility. I pray for ears to hear. I pray that you'd find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have a friend that pastors a prominent church in a nearby state. He has just returned from a country where it is illegal to be a Christian. His church has a partnership with an underground ministry in that country to share Christ, to win people to Jesus. His trip is cut short because he was there with one of his partners in the ministry, a national that lives there, and the two of them were walking along the seashore in a populated area with a third man that was with them. And as they walked, they had a casual conversation. That conversation turned to Christianity and the man started asking questions. A pastor friend and the missionary started sharing Christ. As the conversation went forward and Christ was being shared, the man they were talking to asked if they had something, if they had something he could read to tell him about Jesus. They gave him a Bible, but somebody saw it. When they saw that Bible changed hands. A mob started gathering. They started shouting, and the mob had turned violent. Thankfully, the police came, and you think you're going to be under protection. The police came and picked them up, my pastor friend and the missionary, took them away into custody downtown to the police station 
Because he's an American, because he's an American, they didn't hurt him, but they made him leave the country immediately. That's why he came home early. His missionary partner is not so lucky. Still in jail. I talked to him this morning. In fact, I went over in that cubicle about 7.30 this morning and called and talked to my friend. And he said that missionary partner was still there. They've not allowed him to change clothes. They've not allowed him to take a bath. And he's already had one hearing. His wife is telling the pastor about this. In the hearing, they asked him, were you proselytizing? That's just three questions. Were you proselytizing, sharing the gospel? He said, yes. Did you give someone a Bible? He said, yes. Do you know that that's illegal to do? He said, yes. They've locked him back up. He's in jail right now, right this second he's in jail. His wife told my pastor friend that he asked for people to pray for him. And what he asked for us to pray, I thought remarkable. He didn't ask for safety. He didn't ask for deliverance. He asked, pray that I would have courage to stand for the gospel in this mean world. Now, you and I don't live in a world like that. The world you and I live in is not as mean as that world, but it is slowly slouching that direction. Part of my obligation, part of what I'm called to do as a pastor is to do to the best of my ability all I can to make sure that the people within my reach are prepared are made aware, are called to be solid disciples. And I think this passage right here is food. I think it's food for our strength. I, I think it's here to give us direction. I think in this passage you find all the necessary ingredients for solid discipleship. So let's get the context. We'd like to do that here before we go into a passage. What is the context? In Mark chapter 6, what has happened already? Jesus and the disciples went to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. He was rejected. They were there watching him be rejected. Verse 6 is the pivotal verse. We turn from Nazareth, and now Jesus starts his itinerant village ministry, preaching in villages. Somewhere along the way, we find out while he's doing that, he decides for the very first time to send the 12 out without him to expand the kingdom. So he, for the first time, sends them out as ambassadors. And what Mark does for us in this passage, Mark gives us a description. And as he does, he gives us a sort of template for discipleship because, I mean, the truth is a mean world, this is how I'll say the sermon, a mean world calls for solid disciples. Students, we live in a mean world. It calls for solid 
disciples. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to frame this sermon in the form of five questions and allow these five questions just, just to serve as sort of pegs in the wall that kind of guide us. You can just hang some truth on each one of the pegs that get us right through the passage and hopefully provide some real-time application. Let's start with the first question. I'll start with an easy one, um, but a clearly necessary one. Here's the first question. Number one, have you been with Jesus? Have you been with Jesus? If you call yourself a Christian, what do you mean by that? When you say that you are a Christian, I don't mean that you like the church, do you like the preacher, do you like gathering with your family on a Sunday? That's not the question. Have you actually been with Jesus? Verse 7 tells us that Jesus called the disciples to himself. You see it right there in verse 7. He called them to himself. He's done that before. We see in chapter 3, he called them there. What happens when Jesus calls the disciples to himself? There he will teach them. There they learn what it means to follow Jesus. They see his example. They understand his teaching. For the disciples, coming to be with Jesus, for a lot of them, was a tremendous sacrifice. They had to leave lucrative careers like tax collecting, like fishing, a fishing industry. For most of us, it doesn't mean we have to do that. We don't have to leave careers. Most of us don't have to do that. But we are called to come and be with him to abide with him. Have you been with Jesus? Isn't that what Jesus says in John chapter 15? Don't you love John chapter 15? You should love John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus says in verses 4 and 5 to his disciples, abide, remain, stay, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is. That person is the one who will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Have you been with Jesus? When you say you're a Christian, what do you mean by that? When I talk about being with Jesus, here's what I mean. I read something this week, I don't, can't remember where I saw it, but a preacher said about Sunday morning church that you should always preach as if there are people there that will hear the gospel for the first time. So they can understand it. So you need to share the gospel. You also need to preach in such a way and understand that there are people sitting in this room that may hear the gospel for the last time. When I say gospel, what do I mean? Here's what I mean. That God has created you in his image. You have dignity. I respect you because the image of God is in you. Created in the image of God. It's a wonderful thing to be created in the image of God, but that's not the only thing about us, is it? That image of God in us has been messed up. It's disfigured by our sin. It's not just that we are far from God. Our sin is a crime against God and, and calls for judgment. We stand under condemnation. We don't start with a zero sum of a blank slate and we'll either get good or bad. We, we come into this world with a propensity towards sin. And when we're old enough to do it, we sin. And that has separated. It's a crime against God. That crime against God calls for punishment. That's why 
That's why the cross. See, the cross is the center of Christianity because Jesus lived perfectly in a way we can't. You're a sinner, you can't be perfect. Jesus, as a, as a, as a human, lived perfectly, and at the cross, what he does is he takes the wrath of punishment. Takes all the punishment. Look, no matter what your sins are, every one of them, you come to Christ, he took the punishment at the cross. There he died. The, the gospel is that God killed his son instead of you. Jesus died in the place of sinners. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? So Jesus dies. Is that enough? No. Three days in the grave, God raises him from the dead. Why does he raise him from the dead? To show that there is victory over death? To show that he has received the sacrifice of Jesus in your place? Jesus ascends into heaven. This is what the Bible teaches. Sends into heaven and rules as Lord. And that's presented to you in the form of information. It's the gospel. What do you do with it? You must make it your own. To have been with Jesus means you've believed that he did that for you. Have you been with Jesus? I'll start there, but I've got to move quickly. Here's the second question, number two. Do you live for Jesus? The first question, a lot of you answered it in the affirmative in your mind. Yes, I have, have a conversion experience. I have a I went through a baptism. I joined the church. I can look back on it. I even remember the preacher that baptized me. So when I said, have you been with Jesus? You said yes. So here's the second question. Do you live for Jesus? Let me show you where I get that. It's in verse 7. Let's take the rest of the verse. Let me read it, and then let's just make some application in three different ways. Verse 7. <clears throat> and he called the 12, and he began to send them out. That's the first way. Send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He called the 12, and he sent them out. That word in Greek is the verb form of the word apostle. It is apostolon. It means to be an ambassador for. If Jesus is the first one that is sent, God sent Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The apostles are sent out as ambassadors, as representatives. Let's pause here for a moment and let me talk about apostles. The apostles, the 12, they are a unit. They are a specific group of people. Judas was one of the apostles. He was a son of perdition. Paul became an apostle as one untimely born. An apostle is someone who was an eyewitness. They saw Jesus. An apostle was somebody that had been with Jesus from his baptism until his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Somebody that was a part of all of that. If you had not seen all of that, you are not an apostle. If someone tells you, hey, I am an apostle. If you meet someone that says, I am an apostle, that person needs to be very old. <laughs> Apostles are gone. We do not have apostolic authority. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The foundation has been laid. You don't keep laying the foundation. That's done. Now, the, this group of men, they had authority that we don't have, but we do have the same mission. That mission is a mindset. 
It's something we have to keep telling ourselves that it's not an appendage. Your Christianity is not an appendage you put on on Sundays. It's not a crutch that you use when you're hurt or need help. Your Christianity is how you live your life as one who is, who is sent. Maybe you don't feel like you're sent because you're still here. You haven't been anywhere. Maybe you don't feel like you, you are sent out. You live as an ambassador. Think of it like this. We gather together in the kingdom, this outpost of the kingdom of God on Sunday mornings. We do so to worship, to fellowship, to encourage one another, to have our souls fed, to think of how good it is to be a part of this kingdom. But we don't stay here. Once worship is done as ambassadors, we leave here sent out to represent the king. Now, when you're coming up in middle school and high school, it's good to sort of have this defense mechanism that says, it doesn't matter what people think about me, I'm going to do what I know is right. That's a good thing to say. But if you carry that thought too far, you miss being an ambassador. You see, because there does come a time that it does matter. Because if you're an ambassador, what they think of you is what they think of the one you represent which then should guide our thoughts on every aspect of life, on our recreation, how we have fun, on our demeanor, how we speak with other people, on what we say, our speech, the friends that we're with, the, the lifestyle, how we spend our money. I think one of the ways that um, we don't think enough about is is your presence on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. What, what you project and how you are perceived as an ambassador for Christ. He sent them out, he says in verse 7. But notice what else about verse 7. Notice how he sent them out. The text says that he sent them out two by two. Why didn't he send them out as individuals? And cover more ground, or 12 of them. Sent them out together. I think there's several reasons why he sent them out two by two. I think possibly it could be that, as it says in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17, that on the testimony of two witnesses, a truth is established. Maybe that's why he did it like that. Surely he did it because they need fellowship. It's good to have a companion. Truthfully, you have a picture of accountability. Two men, two women walking together holding one another accountable while they're away from the other group. Certainly it would be for encouragement. Lord, and there's not a person in here that couldn't use a little encouragement. By the way, anytime you see somebody today, you can guarantee they will benefit from having you encourage them. I woke up this morning at 3.40, not on my own will. But that dog started howling at 3.40. Now, I, know I normally get up at 4 on Sunday mornings, but that 20 minutes is very important. <laughs> the dog got me up, and I went out, went out and let the dog out, 340, and he's howling in the yard, so all the neighbors are up now. <laughs> Speaking of being an ambassador, all the neighbors are up now. And uh, I looked at my phone, and I have a message from a friend of mine in Ireland, Brian Black. He has preached in this pulpit, Brian Black, several years ago. He's traveling three hours to preach somewhere, and he's listening to our services and he pulled over on the side of the road to send me this message of encouragement. And he, 
just spoke to me such encouraging words that were life-given on a Sunday morning. God sent them out. Jesus sent them out two by two because they would need encouragement. They would need to press one another on to grow. They would need help. They would need help. A lot of us will use Ecclesiastes chapter 4 in a wedding ceremony, use it there, and it's not wrongly applied, but that's not the only way. When Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he wasn't thinking about a husband and wife. He was thinking about two companions. This is what he said. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10. Solomon said, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will help his brother up or pick up his fellow. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls, when there's not another to pick him up. He sent them out. He sent them out two by two. He sent them out with, at the end of verse 7, with great confidence. Confidence. Look at the confidence as he sent them out in verse 7. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, he gave them apostolic authority. They, as apostles, had authority that we don't have. I want you to look not so much at the apostles. I want you to look at the, the one who had the authority to give. He possesses the authority. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says, I have authority in heaven and on earth. Here we see he has authority over evil spirits. It's a good reminder of the one we serve, that he is Lord over all, that Jesus Christ is Lord not in your life. Jesus Christ is Lord completely, that Jesus is sovereign, that you can live your life with great joy and confidence as you live as one who is sent. We live sent, we live with fellowship, we live with confidence. Have you then? Have you been with Jesus? Do you live for Jesus? Let's go to a third question. You'll find that in verses 8 and 9 and 10. The third question is, are you dependent on Jesus? Are you dependent on Jesus? <clears throat> verses 8, 9, and 10, Jesus he gives some very specific instructions. Let's just read the instructions. I'd like to come back and make three broad-based applications about depending on Jesus. Join me there, verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for the journey, so they can take a walking staff, no bread, no bag, no money, nothing to eat, no bag that's a, like a begging bag or people would put donations in, no bag, uh, no money in their belts, Sandals on their feet, no change of clothes. Verse 10, you go into a place, a, a village, and someone opens their home to you, you stay in that place the whole time you're there. So, so what are the sort of the in principal form? What are the principles that we can withdraw from this? Well, one is the word, I'll give you three words. The first word is, is simplicity, simplicity. You read this, you get the idea. Jesus is calling his disciples to travel lightly, to, to store up minimum provision and have maximum faith. Most of our struggle is not that. Today we are not in danger of traveling too lightly. Today we are in danger of having actually too much baggage. 
He says to them in verses 7 and 8, 9, I don't want you having any more clothes on your back. You've got the sandals on your feet. You've got a walking stick in your hand. You've got enough to go. Now, I'm not saying that we need to live like monks or nuns or aesthetics that turn away. I'm thankful for luxuries. I'm not looking for air conditioning to be taken away from the church. I do think, however, that if you get so caught up in the things of the world, you miss the call of the mission. Simplicity. There's another word here that I would uh, use. It's the word dependence. Dependence. He says, you're going you're to go here without any money in your pocket. I don't want you to take any extra food, no extra clothing. You go there, and you're just going to have to trust where God is taking you, he'll provide for you. Hey, let me pause here. <clears throat> what is keeping you from doing the right thing? I mean, right now, right now, what is keeping you from, is it, is it you're afraid of, there won't be enough money, you're afraid of finances, you're afraid of people, you're afraid, you see, following Christ is a life of trust. Following Christ means that you are obedient regardless. And in this in this list of commands that Jesus sort of stacks up in verses 8 and 9 and down to verse 10, there is this call for humility because the apostles, when they go into another town, God is going to provide, but he's going to use other people to do it. it takes humility. There are a lot of you sitting in this room right now. You have the hardest time letting other people help you. And it's pride. That's all it is. It's pride. And it's sinful. You see, following Christ means trusting God and dependent on God and the people that God has brought around you. Simplicity and dependence. I'll give you a third word. Third word is contentment. Contentment. Just look at it quickly in verse 10. He says, you go into a village and when someone opens their home to you, you stay in that home. The, the idea is you, you don't get there and start looking for an upgrade. Somebody else's house. You got there the first, you didn't realize that there were rich people on the other side of town, so you're going to go on the other side of town, stay there. What he's saying is you, you don't need to think about that. Your job is, is not living your life to find a better, more comfortable place. There is this call to keep your eyes on the mission to be content with what God has given you and then live your life as an ambassador, as one who is sent. Have you then? Have you actually been with Jesus? Do you, do you live your life for Jesus? Are you dependent on Jesus? Let me give you a fourth question that maybe will guide us toward the end. I have a fourth and a fifth. Here's the fourth one. Will you suffer for Jesus, suffer. Verse 11 is Jesus teaching them about rejection, what it's like to be rejected. In verse 11, Jesus gives some very clear instructions 
on how to handle rejection. He has just shown it to them in Nazareth. Now he gives them instruction, and he takes a practice from Jewish life, and he gives it a different meaning. Let me read it to you, verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So the idea, uh, when the Jews would walk through Gentile lands and get back home after being in a Gentile land, what they typically would do was shake the dust off their feet as a symbol of cleansing. So Jesus takes that meaning, throws it out, and says, look, you've been there and you've preached, and people reject you and they won't listen to you. Here's what you do. You do the same thing. You shake the dust off your feet, but it's not you saying, I'm done with those people. That's not what this is. This is a testimony. See the word, verse 11? This is a sign of judgment. This is you letting people know how serious following Jesus is. That there's, there's, there's judgment without Christ. There's condemnation without Christ. This is you letting them know how much is really on the line. Matthew Henry, a great preacher from another age, Matthew Henry, when he talked about this passage and, and what Jesus taught here, he said that dust that you shake off, your it, it becomes like the plagues, the dust that was in Egypt, the Pharaoh's. The sign of God's judgment. It's a statement. It's a statement of the consequences of rejecting Christ, rejecting the free offer of the gospel. Please come to Christ. Please give your life to Jesus. I'll close it with this one last question. <clears throat> Number five. Are you clear about Jesus? Are you clear about Jesus? I want to start at the bottom of verse 13, and then I'll go to verse 12. Verse 13, you have a display of apostolic authority that we don't have. Verse 13, they cast out many demons. They anointed with oil. You see that right here and over in James, the anointing with oil almost always in the Old Testament will be a symbol of God's Spirit. There is healing there. It's good to care. We need to care for people to provide healing. We need to make sure that that points to the ultimate healing that is in Christ. But, but instead of looking at verse 13, I want you to look at the message in verse 12. Verse 12 says, They went out and they preached. They proclaimed that people should repent. That word repent, it's the, it's the same word that John the Baptist used when he started preaching before Jesus came, to repent. Jesus came, the, the very same word that Jesus used when he preached Jesus, the very first word of the gospel, repent, the kingdom of God. It's the word that the apostles would use in the book of Acts. It's how the, the church was born out of repentance. As I studied for this message, I used lots of books, and I read in one of the books, uh, Christ-Centered Exposition. You could probably get that in the bookstore. In the commentary, Christ-Centered Exposition, they quote 
Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson was a preacher in England during the middle 1600s. Charles I had his head cut off. Oliver Cromwell is the interregnum. He Thomas Watson's church flourished then, but when Charles II came back, he was kicked out of his church and started writing books. He wrote a little book about repentance, and he gives us six ingredients of repentance. I'm going to go through them quickly. Here's the first one. He says you've got to have sight of sin, to see the sin as sin, to recognize that in your life that is sinful, to see it as sin. Maybe it's your lifestyle. To, would you today see it as sinful? The next ingredient is, um, is sorrow for sin. To have genuine grief in your heart for the wrong that has been done, maybe the wrong against someone else or the, or the wrong against God, to actually experience the grief, sorrow for sin. The third ingredient is confession of sin. Confession of sin. When you confess sin, it is you passing judgment on your own sin. Confession is to say the same thing about your sin that God has said about it. Confession of sin. The, the fourth ingredient would be, would be shame. This is one we forget, to, to blush, to be ashamed of the sin. Think, um, think, of the, think about the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son when he's off in the far country and there in the pig slop when the Bible says he came to his senses. This Jesus says he came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, he was ashamed and he thought about his speech and he said, I'm going to tell my father, I am no longer worthy to be your son. Shame. That shame should go to the, the fifth ingredient, which is a hatred of sin. To actually hate it. The Bible says that God protects us from our enemies, so you should make that sin your enemy. To hate it. And the sixth and final ingredient, the most important, I think, <clears throat> is a turning away from that sin. A turning away. When you turn away from something, you turn towards something else. It's the beauty of repentance. You don't just turn away from sin and turn toward an abyss. You turn away from sin and you turn toward the mercy and the love of God, the forgiveness of God the goodness of God, the grace of God found at the cross. The apostle Paul, who was a worse sinner than anybody in here, said it's the, it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. Like that's how I want to end today. Calling you to repentance. Our God waits to receive you. Our God waits to receive you by the substitute, Jesus. Will you come and give your life to Jesus? Come and receive the atoning work of forgiveness found at the cross of Christ. Our, our world, our mean world calls for solid disciples. and That starts with a first step of repentance. With your head bowed this morning as you go to the Lord in a moment of commitment and prayer, let me invite you. With your head's bowed, let me invite you. you. You have heard, for the first time maybe, it resonates with you. You need to repent. 
You need to actually and genuinely turn. You need to follow through. You need somebody to pray for you. Today, we want to pray for you and pray with you. When we sing, we invite you to come forward right down here. All our pastors are here. We pray with you. Somebody's here to judge you. We want to point you to the grace of God. Maybe you know someone you need to pray for. Maybe you want to come and pray for that person this morning. Just listen to the Lord. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a longer conversation. You want to talk afterwards to a pastor. We're always here to help you see what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ. When we sing this morning, if you feel comfortable with the idea, we would invite you to come forward and pray. Father, thank you for the grace you've given us in Christ. Thank you for the love that you express. And I pray by your spirit, you will call people, even now, to yourself. I ask you to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand, please. We sing together.